Okay, Inappropriate Earl is back. We're still working out our iTunes chart issues. I think I have an internet saboteur who was trying to take me down, but you only make me stronger. And today, I have a very special guest. You know, I have a lot of comics on. I have a lot of uh, roast battle people on. I have a lot of people from the cartoon world. I have a lot of 80s metal guys. Uh, today is really my favorite TV show of all time is Prison Break. I've always had an obsession with prison because I don't think I'll ever be in one. Uh, my next guest has, he's probably the most interesting guest I've ever had on this podcast because it's a story I know no previous guest has. Um, he started out as an elite high school athlete and ended up in a Pakistani prison and for something he didn't do. I know this sounds like a TV movie, and which it might be one day, hopefully, but uh, please put your hands together for someone I literally just met one minute ago, which is how I like it, Mr. Eric Ade. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, I appreciate being here. <laughs> but no, I, uh, I agree with you. My, uh, my life is unlike anyone else's life. And, and but, but don't sell yourself short. You could be in prison one day. It's, it's not that hard to get arrested. I just want to point that out. It's very easy to get arrested. Well, I'm, uh, I can't ever picture a situation I would put myself in to even remotely consider uh, the possibility of being in prison because I, for lack of a better word, am a pussy. I don't like physical confrontation. And I would imagine someone who looks like me, not skinny, but uh, maybe a slightly above average uh, body-wise guy would be a prime target in prison uh, just for uh, bullying. I mean, because I imagine uh, when you first walk into prison, if you're a newer uh whether you should be there or not, you're sized up as how can we do whatever to this guy? I know when you go into jail, that's exactly what happens is we, everyone wants to see uh, what you're made of. They see you as an easy target and there's, there's, there's prey and then there's fish in prison and there's, there's really no, there's like the old timers become the, the middle, but when you walk into jail there, you're already being labeled right off the get go. If people think that they can get things off of you, they're gonna, and that's not just, that's not just prison in uh, Pakistan. That's that's pretty much common sense at any kind of prison. If you go in looking weak, people are gonna uh, are gonna attack that. They're gonna capitalize on that. You have no choice but to uh, stand up for yourself. And, and if if you went in looking weak, it'd be a lot. The pain would be a lot longer lasting rather than a you know a quick beat down where you defend yourself as as best as you can, whether you you can fight or not. But if people see that this guy is gonna protect himself he's not going to back down it's just not worth it we'll find other people to go after I'm, I'm, that's that's the way it is and hopefully you never go to jail but if you do you go in with the mentality of i'm gonna bite somebody's dick off if they try to do something bad to me and no one will fuck with you if you do that <laughs> be the crazy guy well i i would imagine uh you know i of course have seen a lot of prison movies you know shaw sank redemption uh, the, the tom Selleck movie which is so bad it's good uh, an innocent man that's an oldie well it's yeah. kind of, it's obviously a much different situation than, than yours but you know he was sent to prison for something he didn't do and uh it's one of my it's a motivational line i use when i feel i'm being bullied is uh the first day he's in prison the black gang steals his toothpaste 
The next day, the Aryan Brotherhood says, uh, you've got to do the guy who took your toothpaste. You've got to kill him. And he looks at the guy and he's like, I'm not killing someone who stole my toothpaste. And the guy gave the best advice ever. And I hesitate to say a guy from the Aryan Brotherhood gave great advice. But he's like, you don't have to stand tall in here, but you've got to stand. And I, I use that in my daily life. Like, you have to stand up for yourself. And I would imagine in prison, like, that stuff does happen, like where people steal your your toiletries or your 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 pillow or your blanket and and as trivial as that seems you have to you have to do something about it right or you get labeled if 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 you don't do something about it people are going to know that you're a pushover and you're a pussy and they're going to come and do whatever they want to you and the next time it might not be your a toilet or or your or your or your toiletries or your blanket or your pillow it could be you they can take do whatever they want to you you have to stand up for yourself because there's nothing there's nothing in jail, unfortunately, there's there's just there's a lot of bad people there, and whoever started the the way it was back in the day, I think it just continued on. You know the uh, the bad tradition. Like when I in Pakistan, when I went to jail, they have a they have a a welcoming uh, committee, and it's for all the new prisoners that go in there. And there's these numbered guards who will 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 beat the, beat down the new prisoners and they're allowed to take whatever they want off of them their their clothes their sandals their shoes uh, any money any watches any jackets anything they deem of value and that's their uh that's the luxury of being a number guard which is basically a prisoner that does the guards dirty work for them uh so in Pakistan it's not it's it's just just the way it is like when you go to jail you're going to get shut down. And most of the prisoners just curl up and, and, and take the beating. Uh, the day I was arrested, though, was a special occasion. I was the only one that got brought in, uh, got sent into prison on my own. Normally, they would send them in groups of, you know, anywhere from six to a dozen. And then everyone would corral them and get like one guy, maybe two on one. And because I was an American and I guess they, uh, they knew that I was going to, I don't know what they were doing. They, I got, I got a special treatment when I went into jail and I had to fight literally the second the gate opened, I was already swinging away, but I was treating it. I always say I was treating it like opening kickoff and all I wanted to do was get through these guys so they couldn't surround me and I can turn the fight into one on one or two on one. Um, and these guys were wearing dresses and they had their beards and sandals. So I was able to use their own facial hair against them, their own dresses and their, and their clothing against them. Um, and you know, if I, if I known I was going to be there for three years, I probably would have been a lot nicer and, uh, tried to smile and make some friends right away. But instead I was going in and smashing guys. And it was because of what I learned from watching shows like Oz on right. HBO or, uh, you know, like I'm, I liked Prison Break. I liked the first two seasons. Not I, I stopped watching after that. It got stupid. Well, I think that, uh, and I, I, you know, as you can tell, Eric, I don't really plan questions. So we go in and out of reality. Like, uh, I thought the idea for Prison Break was fascinating. Like, who the hell breaks into prison? Uh, and I thought if they would have just done one season that show would still be talked about as like, wow, what a great concept. You know, they had me, like you said, season two, you got a show where they break out and where they end up. But then like season three, when they end up in a Panamanian jail, the same eight guys, it's like, that's a little hard to believe. And then season yeah, four. They started jumping the shark pretty good there. That, <laughs> that show jumped the uh, whole ocean. I, I liked how it like was 
went to the presidential like levels and all that. But then, you know, if they had a, exposed him and he was proven innocent, that's how the show should have ended. Not now they're in Panama, you know, <laughs> screw that. Well, that's the, I think that show is such a um, fascinating look into how Hollywood can, pardon my language, fuck up a good idea. Like on the surface, one or two seasons, that's one of the great shows of the last 20 years in terms of the idea and how they, you know, each episode had this amazing cliffhanger that made you want to watch the next episode. But then they're like, well, let's do one more season. We could milk it. And then season four, season five was, I don't know what drugs that writing staff was on. but I, I didn't, I didn't, I couldn't get through. I started season, I started season four and then I was like, well, forget it. I don't know what's going on anymore. Was that show like, like is it weird for you to watch a, a like, like prison break or, you know, Oz, Knowing that this isn't how prison is. No, well, like, think, is it hard I, for you to? I, I think no, it's not easy. Like when I watch prison movies, I, I mean, I, they're not like that. They always show you the worst, worst of it. You know, prisons most, most, mostly what prison is is a bunch of people just trying to figure out what they're going to eat next, and uh, you know, trading magazines and books. <laughs> That's the majority of prison. But when things go bad, they go bad quick, and they and there's. There's no de-escalating the situation. Like when riots happen, people just, just just like it's out of nowhere. Like you and I could be talking, eating lunch, and out out of nowhere we look over and say, "Oh, there's a riot. Let's burn our shit. <laughs> Let's go break all our stuff." It makes no sense. Let's burn down the guard tower, and that would happen. Had you ever been in an American prison before your experience in Pakistan? Uh, not an American prison. I've been arrested a few times uh, for stupid crap. I got arrested when I was 15 for fighting after a football game up in Bishop. And uh, one, I was on JV and one of our, uh, you know, the snack bar was on the other side of the field. So during the varsity game, uh, all the JV players and cheerleaders went over to go get food. Well, some jackass, some 19-year-old guy was throwing rocks at my team, like throwing big rocks at him. So I tackled him from behind before he threw another rock, and I started fighting this guy that was, um, I don't I mean, I don't know what he was doing. I don't know why you would do that, but kids do stupid stuff. Cops on horses arrested both of us, put us in the same squad car, and uh, while we were in the same squad car, this guy tried to cr crush me in the side of the door, so I had to bite him to get him to stop because we were handcuffed behind our backs and the cop in the front pulls the car over and we're on the other side of our bleachers and the kids are just raining down trash on us. They bring us to, uh, the, the prison or what the local, uh, jailhouse up there in, uh, not the prison, the local jailhouse up in Bishop. And, uh, they take a photo of us and I'm thinking to myself, all right, well, if I'm, if I'm going to get in trouble, I might as well enjoy it. So I'm smiling during my mug shots and uh, the other guy, they found weed on him. So that was a big deal back in the day. And, oh, yeah. Uh, so he, they put him in a cell. They let me sit in a chair until the, the priest of our school, Father Caffrey, and our, my football coach, McGuire, came to come get me. And my, they left my photos right there on the table of me smiling. And Father Caffrey looks down and just shakes his head. And <laughs> I was, I mean, well, well, like, what do you do? You're, you know, I was protecting my team. But uh, I still got in a lot of trouble. That was the first time I got arrested. But that's more jail than prison. Yeah, yeah, it's I not mean, prison. No, I've never been to prison in America, and I hope to not ever go to prison in America. But if I had to, honestly, I don't think it would be anywhere near as bad as what I had to go through in Pakistan to adjust. Because at least in a prison in, in America, people speak your language. They feed you. They give you a bed. Hell, you got a shower and a running toilet and water. You know, you can get, you can get a hold of your family and a lawyer that will hopefully do something 
You know, what if what if you you were just locked up and no one spoke your language and you didn't know how to figure anything out and no one was telling you anything of use? I mean, there, that's you're literally like in space in a sense, and people want to hurt you simply because you're different. At least here, I think it would be a cakewalk for me. I really do. I really, I really do. I've been a I've been arrested in Mexico, but that was because my stupid dipshit friend uh, was hitting on a girl at a bar and some Navy guy was hitting on a girl at the bar and they started fighting. So we had to back our friend up and their friends backed them up. So we all got arrested and we spent the weekend in this, uh, I don't think it was prison there, but it was like a jail place with a lot of prisoners, but they had, they had a, like a tortilla card in there. It was, and uh, some guy had, we became friends with the guys we got in fight a fight with. And what they would do is they would throw all these chickens out on the ground and we would have to corral the trick the ch chickens and like work together to get the chicken. Then we pay a dude a pack of cigarettes to, to wrangle it and cook it for us and pluck it for us. Well, one of their MPs, the military police came to get him and uh, because he had a sidearm on him, they arrested him and let the other guys go. And he's like, this is my job. Why they, they can't arrest me. And we're like, don't worry, hang with us. We got your back. And then they're telling us we got, we're good to go. We're like, all right, man, good luck. See you later. And it was a fun weekend of being in jail with my friends. <laughs> right. I, I mean, yeah. But like, I, like to me, in my head, I, I see an American prison, like, let's just say San Quentin. Uh, I've seen so many movies I can name each prison in California. You know, you've probably got the, the white, I guess the Aryan uh, side of the, the yard, the, the blacks, the Mexicans, which is the Mexican uh, mob and, and all the ethnic uh, areas. But in uh, like a Pakistani prison, like how, how is the breakdown in terms the of... The breakdown's not as extreme as that, but there's definitely the breakdowns. Like you can't put the Indians with the Pakistanis because those people hate each other. They're like cats and dogs. Like Bloods and Crips. Uh, I mean, it's not gangs. I mean, but... They're, right, but I mean that level just, of hatred. Just two different groups of people who think they're better than each other. They hate each other. It's not, you know, there's no initiation. It's just like, uh, I, mean, I don't know, like imagine like... Uh, Two family, like let's say you got married and your your wife's family's just hated your family. <laughs> you can't keep put them at the same dinner table together, right? And sometimes someone gets a little out of hand. It wasn't you know everyone, but everyone hated each other, but some would escalate it more than others. So they would put the Indians in their own barracks. There was this is the biggest prison, like the prison I was in was the biggest prison in all of Pakistan. It was built in '86. It was meant to house only 1,800 prisoners, but there were over 6,000 there, hundreds coming and going every day. There was even a very small women's prison in there. There was a hospital, there was a school, there was death uh, death row. There were courts inside the prison for the really, really dangerous prisoners that the um, that the officials were afraid their family members would bust them out because that happened all the time. You know, you had family members who had little jurgas in smaller cities. A jurga is like the elders of a town who, you know, they govern themselves. It's it's anarchy. So these people have to gov govern themselves. The the all of the country is not under, you know, one ruler. It's not. You've got all these um you've I mean, I guess you can you would say like warlords, but they're, you know, they're they're jurgas. They're 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 elders and they they live by a class system. My family's better than your family, but your family's not as 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 bad as that family and it comes it comes with how much land you have, how much money you have. Um, who you're related to. So in, in jail, you, they have farms in there. They've got uh, hospitals. They've, they've, they've got, you know, workshops and they've got uh, all these different, it's a city in a city basically. And you've got the barracks, you've got the foreigner barracks, you've got the Nigerian barracks. The Nigerian barracks was the most packed of the Westerners other than India. India had the, 
the biggest turnout of prisoners in Pakistan. Then it was, uh, then it went to Nigerians. The Nigerians had their own barracks because those guys are just drug smugglers. All they do is, is try to smuggle, um, hashish, opium, uh, uh, heroin. And that's a, Pakistan is a big, is a big distribution for, for all those. And then some, but of the other foreigners, they would either be in the foreigner barracks, which was everyone. You had French, English, Australian, a Canadian came once. Uh, no other Americans ever came through like true Americans. There was a couple people that had dual citizenship, two passports, but they weren't born in America. Um, a couple English, uh, a lot of South Africans, but I'm the only American. And what all the Westerners had that in common was they would all say, I'm not America. I hate America. So they would, they would all use the fact that they weren't American and also, uh, voice how, how much they hated America in order to try to get the Pakistanis to go easy on them. So they would have to, you, they, there was walls and walls. They, they couldn't put a lot of different prisoners together. I mean, Taliban were locked up all the time. The Al Qaeda were locked up all the time. Um, you had the, the, you had some very respectable prisoners there too. Like we had the future prime minister of Pakistan in jail with us, Yusuf Raza Jelani, who would become prime minister. Um, we had the uh, future president of Pakistan, uh, Benazir Bhutto's husband, who was in jail with us. Um, he was up in A class. These guys were up in A class. A class was like political prisoners, but they were also like the the most rich prisoners that you could have in there. A class, you know, these guys had beds and they had a stand up shower and a sit down toilet. You know, that was the, the, the these guys were obviously the luxury, and but they weren't allowed into the general prison at all. So it's like that uh, scene in Goodfellas where like the mob had like their own section and they're in beds and they could bring in food. That's a great, that's a great way to put it because that is exactly what it was. These, these guys had the nicest garden too. And the way I was able to go there all the time was because I got the first cell phone into prison. I got the first working, like the cell phone, because no one knew at the time if it was going to work anyways, because we were so far out in Rawalpindi and to get a cell phone, it would co it cost 10,000 rupees, 10,000 rupees, less than 200 bucks. That's a lot of money. But how do you get that in prison? The, the money? The money, like... Well, I had the money being... Well, first, the first when I was first getting money, it was through my uh, my family sending it to the embassy. And then the embassy was supposed to bring it every month. But the embassy stopped bringing it every month because the little uh, interpreter who uh, who the embassy put in charge of my accounts just didn't come. He was probably telling the, you know, the consulars, oh, I'm going to go see the American. And then he was going off and doing whatever the fuck he wanted to do because he was he would not show up. And I'm like, where where, where did you go? And my account kept getting littler and littler. So I was like, this piece of shit that the embassy put in charge of my accounts is is robbing me. He's using me as a way to make money. And he's not even showing up to the prison. So my mom would have to, uh, I met a religious teacher in jail. And the religious teachers are very respected. They don't get searched at all, but they're also beyond corrupt. They will smuggle anything into that jail as long as they're getting paid. So uh, by meeting one of the religious teachers, uh, one of his hustles is he would bring money into prison, uh, that pe that people needed. And just for like a, a flat 500 rupee, that's less than 10 bucks for him. That's a lot of money, but he'll bring whatever amount you want. So my mom was sending, um, uh, $400, uh, every was, was sending $400 for me every other month. So that's 24,000 rupees. And so I was paying the religious teacher 500 rupees. And with that money, I was able to use that money to to buy things and I bought a cell phone. And I got the first working cell phone in that jail. And by using that cell phone, my hustle became, by, by seeing that the cell phone worked, 
because you know it was a, it was a gamble whether or not it was even going to work over there. But when I found out that the cell phone worked, I started running out the phone to other people, and this is how I started making uh, money because you have to make money in jail. I mean, you know, the twenty four thousand rupees is is a lot of money, but I was trying to work on my case. I was trying to get nicer things in. I was trying to fix things. You got to bribe all the guards for them to leave you alone. You got to hire them. You got to you got to make everyone pretty happy around you, uh, and also to to to, to kill your own time you want to want to get things that are going to make like i got a vcd player in there which is a video cd player i got a playstation 2 this is like the but the last year and a half to uh, two years that i was there i was able to have a good living and a good life for myself in jail but by getting that cell phone into jail people started hearing hey eric can get cell phones in and that became my hustle i started getting phones into into the prison and the prime minister sent his people to me to get a phone because i was the guy who can get the phones in and that's how we became friends. And at the end of the day on like, not every day, but I'd be called to go and just walk his garden with him for the last hour, which is like the last hour before lockup, people get a nice little exercise and they're always praying. And him and I became really good friends there. And uh, I would get called over on uh, holidays and special occasions to eat uh, to eat food and, and, and celebrate with these guys. And it was, it was nice to get out of you know, my part of the prison, but people wanted to spend time with me because I was entertaining. I was interesting. Um, and I, you know, they, 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 they loved how well I was able to adjust to prison life. Like I was a, I was a local now when you saw me, you saw all these new faces and then people would come into jail scared and they see me over here just suntanning with, uh, with suntan lotion on my face. And I'd be like, Hey, how you guys doing? Welcome to paradise. You know, <laughs> and the show shows the harshness that I went through. But I had to go through a lot of hell before I was finally able to adjust to my situation. And when I adjusted, I adjusted great. The first year sucked. The second two years weren't nearly as bad. And I had a good life. I had respect. And I um, I found things to keep my time occupied. I didn't waste it. I learned languages. I hosted dinner parties. I worked on my case and several others' cases because I was able to become a lawyer in Pakistan using correspondence courses through the Alama Iqbal Open University. Um, I didn't just sit there and feel sorry for myself. I, I figured out ways to get myself out as soon as possible. And while I was doing that, I was also making the place look better. Um, I was fixing all the cell blocks around me because I didn't, I figure if I'm gonna be there for a while, I might as well you know, make it my home. Um, I have a green thumb, so I, I, had, I made a whole garden. I was able to grow a lawn and bring in plants from other parts of the prison. And I would bribe guards to bring me uh, tools to, to use the shovel. And I was always breaking the shovels because they wouldn't bring like, they would give me these hand shovels and it gave me something to do to turn just really rock hard dirt into soft, uh, nurturing uh, soil and to watch something grow in the hottest part that you think that as long as you give it a little bit of love and, and, and nurture it, it's gonna, it's gonna respond. And it gave me a lot to do while I was there. And I, 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 I had so many different things going on in prison. Like the superintendents would call me up. How's everything going inside? I heard you got a garden and it's going good. And I was teaching one of the superintendents how to type. He never knew how to type. I was teaching another superintendent, uh, French. I was teaching the French guy English. I was teaching people how to read and write their own language in Urdu. I was teaching people how to read Arabic. Um, I was teaching people English. I was, uh, I, I was, you know, I was, I was, people appreciated my time there and I think I left it a tad better than, than I found it when I got it. Now, your story reminds me of a great movie that came out in the early 80s called Midnight Express, which was a, a movie about an American. I think, I believe the movie was set in Turkey. Yeah. 
and uh, he was wrongly accused of drug smuggling. No, 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 no. He wasn't wrongly accused. Of. Billy Hayes is a good friend. Was a very good friend of mine. He, it was about Billy Hayes, and we actually just had uh, uh, today's Tuesday. Okay, last Monday we, I was in Vegas with a few of my friends, and we had dinner with Billy Hayes. Oh shit! Yeah. So I mean, I know Billy Hayes' story pretty good, and he's gonna watch this. So hi, Billy. Uh, hello. Uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> he was played by uh, the, the great actor Brad Davis, who's yeah. no longer with us, but uh, an amazing actor. Is your story? Uh, because I guess we kind of, I and this goes to my bad skills as an interviewer, uh, I, I guess I should have asked you how you ended it. Because you have a interesting, you, you know, you were born in Beverly Hills, but I think most people were like, well, Earl, tell us how the hell he ended up in a Pakistani prison. Like, that's that's a big, how did, how did you end up over there? It, it wasn't planned, that's for sure. Um, uh, yeah, I was born in Beverly Hills, but I was raised in the Valley and then the Antelope Valley. Uh, which is about 60 miles north of LA. And my, uh, when I turned 18, I wanted to be an actor stuntman my whole life. So I moved back down to the Valley, uh, to start pursuing acting jobs. Um, you know, I took any kind of job I can get just to make ends meet because acting is not like, you don't just snap your fingers and you're an actor. You have to go on auditions. You you have to be told no a hundred times just before you might be told yes. And it's about rejection and having thick skin. So to be an actor, you have to be able to take Uh, a lot of criticism. You got to be able to handle rejection. And for those that, you know, and my, my, but my, my goals were to be an actor and a stuntman. So being told no, wasn't an option for me. I had to take side jobs. One of my jobs, um, I found a a cool job in, um, Burbank. I was a personal trainer at this gym called world gym in Burbank. And I was a nighttime manager there. So I was working out with clients running the gym at night, which allowed me to open up my days for auditions and possible work. And I was getting work, just not full-time work. Um, so having the, the gym job was, it was, it was a safety net. Now at the gym, I met this man named Ray Gazarian. A lot of people at the gym were introducing, were, were, were working from, had met him, were being introduced to him. And when you're, when I worked at the gym, I met, I know I became friends with all the regulars. People would come in and just to, just to talk and hang out. And then they go work out for a little bit, come back and chat because I became friends with everyone. Ray Gazarian was known for hiring people to travel around the world for him to import expensive leather samples and pay them for it. And the reason why he would do this was because he says he would save a lot of money by having people like you or me travel over there, claiming as their own clothing to beat the import tax. You know, when you go overseas, they give you that paper when you come back. Did you buy anything? Yes. Four hundred dollars or more. I myself have never put. Yes, I have bought. Tw- you know, twelve hundred bucks with the stuff because you would get hit with a crazy import tax. You just say it's yours. Yeah, you say it's yours. You say no, I didn't buy anything. You know, they want to know. You know, like because the government wants their money. So the way this job was presented was, uh, he we're, we'd be bringing back leather samples, leather clothes, very fine leather goods worth anywhere from 25 to $30,000 worth of good, uh, worth, yeah, worth of anywhere from 25 to $30,000 total. So, uh, by sending someone like you to go over there, you get a free trip, you get 800 bucks spending cash and, uh, you get to, you know, experience, uh, another culture and get a free vacation out of it. Ray says that he would save anywhere from 14 to $16,000. So it's a win-win. Now the job seemed a little too good to be true. I'd never been out of the country. I wanted to go. I was definitely interested but I wasn't sold, so I, I said thanks, but no thanks. And I watched everyone else make these trips. I watched a lot of people make countless trips, come back, brag about where they went. They went to Sweden, they went to France, went to Italy. And yeah, I was envious. I wanted to make these trips. I was 19 when I met this man. I thought that'd be the greatest thing ever. 
Well, after knowing him for nine months, becoming very good friends with him, hanging out with him, going to like, he owned this car dealership and he would say, Hey, I need you to help me uh, pick up some cars for me. Cause he, and drive them to the car wash and bring them back. And now these are like brand new Mercedes Benz, brand new BMWs. And for a 19 year old kid, it's cool to <laughs> driving down Glendale in a brand new looking car. Even if it's not yours, it's just cool to drive a nice car for a little bit. Um, so I, I, I saw him as a friend and I also was envious how successful this man was. Uh, well, come December of, after knowing this guy for 19, uh, for nine months, come, come December, my girlfriend at the time broke up with me and I was bummed and it was obvious I was bummed. And when Ray came into the gym, he saw I was down. Cause usually I was always conversa making conversations, telling jokes, uh, being very friendly. He knew me because we were close. He says, hey, what's wrong? I tell him what happened because that's the kind of relationship we have. He's not, he wasn't a stranger to me. This is my friend. And uh, he, I told him how my girl broke up with me. And his exact words like, man, you need to make a trip for me. And like, he just pounced on it. You need to make a trip for me. And uh, I got, I got my, um, my passport. And a week later, I was on my first trip to Turkey. Turkey was a, a great, beautiful country. I had a great time. I, I wasn't depressed. I was having... I was having an adventure. I was experiencing life. On the way back, I went to to Stockholm and saw another great place. And wow, I mean, I just felt I, I felt so uh, traveled. You know, it just was great to be able to do this. And I got paid for this. And I came back to America, and everything went without a hitch. I my job was to 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 grade everything, make sure it was it was uh, not damaged. To how you know he was getting the right amount, and uh, and just to say this is my own clothing. Well, he wanted me to go the next month, but I started filming the movie, uh, dude, where's my car? And I couldn't do it. I was on dude, where's my car for a couple months or, and I was busy, but I didn't want to lose this opportunity. So I started encouraging it to other people at the gym too. And other people were bragging and we were, we were like, where'd you go? Or did, where'd you go? Oh yeah, I stayed there too. But I wanted to keep this opportunity open. I thought it was a great opportunity, right place kind of job. So I started encouraging it to my friends, my family, my brothers, my mother. I encouraged it to everyone because I thought it was so, so fucking cool. You know, this is, this is the stuff that you don't come across. And I came across, you know, a home run of a, of a cool job opportunity, but I was also starting to act. I was starting to act so much though, that I quit my job at the gym. I, I was doing, I did Dude, my car. Then I did the movie Planet of the Apes of Mark Wahlberg. Then I was working on the movie Scorpion King over the course of a year and a half. And then I started getting reoccurrence on different TV shows and a lot of Nickelodeon, a lot of CW, a lot of co-stars, a few guest stars, a few reoccurring. They were getting better and bigger and bigger. I was starting to be able to support myself as an actor and a stuntman. And my dreams were coming true. But I still wanted to keep this possible opportunity because I know that just because it's raining at the moment doesn't mean that it's going to stop anytime soon. So I wanted to keep this opportunity open still. And I went again uh, six months later in in June of two two thousand um, yeah in June of two thousand one. Once again, had a great time. Well, then September eleventh happens. No one wants to make any trips. People are scared. We America got a huge eye opening uh, there. What we thought to us at the time, my, me personally, I thought the rest of the world liked us because they wear our clothes, they listen to our music, they watch our movies. So I assumed that they, they kind of like, they, and they're always trying to come here, it seems. And I just thought that people, everyone liked America. That just shows you what I, I, I knew. Turns out the rest of the world does not like America. In fact, they hate America. They hate America. And they, for so many different reasons. I'm still very naive at this time. And I don't really understand why 
you know, what's happening. Like, okay, a couple of psychopaths went and destroyed the towers and killed 3,000 people that day. But, uh, you know, America, uh, you know, I, I really didn't understand why that would happen. I'm still working on TV shows at the time and I'm busy doing my own thing. And I just moved out of my apartment to go live with a, a buddy of mine in, uh, in Canoga park and, uh, just turned 21. So my life is, is just starting. And I've got a lot of good things happening on the horizon. I got movies planned. I got a pilot I just booked. So I got a lot of good things happening. Well, my brother, Peter, I'm, I'm the youngest of six boys, by the way, my older brother, Peter, he wasn't doing so well. He had, uh, at the time he was a, an alcoholic and he's, he's not an alcoholic anymore. He's gotten clean and everything. I'm very proud of him for that. But at the time he was an alcoholic and $800 would have been a lot of money for him. It would have been, uh, you know, he, he, he needed to, he needed to work. And he's the one who reached out to me and says, Hey, I'd like to, 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 to meet Ray and get, instead of a trip and go on a trip. So I introduced him to Ray. Um, and I think that's it. They're going to handle each other, handle it now. I'm literally doing the show Reba. I'm reoccurring on the show. That's so Raven. I'm reoccurring on the Andy Dick show um, and the show that's life. So I'm doing four different shows. I have no time. And I'm also just finishing Scorpion King. And I've got a pilot lined up that I booked that I called 360. I got a couple of movies lined up. So I'm busy, busy and I'm juggling all this stuff together. I get a call from Ray saying, Hey, your brother said he's not going. And I'm like, wow, that's making me look bad. Cause here I vouched for my brother. I don't want to lose these opportunities myself because of him. So he's like, you got to talk to your brother. I'm like, okay, I'll talk to him. I call Peter up and go, why aren't you going? You're making me look like an asshole. He goes, it's, I'm not going. I'm just, it's not happening. And he's not explaining it. I said, what the fuck is your problem? He goes, no, it's, it's dangerous over there. I'm not going. I go, Turkey's fine. I've been twice. You'll, you'll love it. And he's like, it's not to Turkey. It's to Pakistan. I go, what are you talking about? This is the first I ever heard. It's from to Pakistan. He says, yeah, Ray, Ray says it's to Pakistan and I'm not going. So I'm like, yeah, I, I can't vouch or Pakistan, I've never been. So I called to call Ray to see what the hell's going on. Ray's claiming because of what happened uh, 9-11 and we got war drums going to Afghanistan that he's getting a really good deal on leather goods in Pakistan. I'm like, well, if your deal is so great, you can just FedEx everything back. That's fine. You don't need people going over there. And, you know, Ray kind of put, put me on the spot and made me feel guilty. He's like, look, you know, I set up, I'm going to lose a lot of money. He goes, remember when you didn't want to go to Turkey, you were worried, but you had a great time. And he used that. Well, yeah. He goes, he goes, my contacts will take you out. They'll show you a good time. Nothing will happen. Your brother will be safe. I promise you. Peter's already dead set that he's not going, but I didn't want to leave Ray hanging either because I had vouched for, for Peter. Uh, I, it sucks that it was to Turkey, but I also felt obligated to Ray. I did, you know, I didn't want, I thought, I thought he had done me a huge favor by letting me just work for him in the first, the first times. So even though I had no time whatsoever, I took the trip. I went in place of Peter. And I always say this, I always say, I'm glad it was me. I'm glad it was me that found out the hard way, what it was that we were all really being used to do. It had nothing to do with the leather jackets. Uh, the leather jackets was a smoke screen. It was, it was to keep our attention off of what we were really being used to import, which was narcotics. Um, were they I, like stuffed in the leather? If I had brought my own suitcase, uh, I think I probably would have found out that way. Uh, the leather jackets were, and I always say to people, if, uh, if, uh, someone taps you on the shoulder and you look, but they're not there, it's, you know, and a magician will, will always say, look at this hand while he's robbing you with the other hand. Um, it was, it was professionally sewn into the walls of the suitcase. Oh, wow. So you, you, you empty the suitcase, it looks like an empty suitcase. Uh, but it was so thin and so long that it looked, you know, it was just, 
sewn into the the walls of the suitcase and uh you couldn't see it it was i never saw it on the previous for two trips definitely didn't see it on this trip but either either somebody had when i went to the airport and uh there's a couple things that could have happened because they said that i was arrested with 3.6 which it technically isn't a lot normally i would be carrying two huge suitcases that were just so heavy and they were weighed down that my shoulders would sink and i'd have to pay extra money at the airport because everything weighed too much uh, this time it was one suitcase and that kind of should have been a red flag but instead of me thinking oh something's wrong here i was happy that i wasn't having to lug around all this luggage because i was going to be going back to sweden and i was looking forward to going there and not having you know so i look i you know for me i just like oh hey great this is going to be an easier trip than i realized uh but either a really good customs official did a great job or someone tipped them off. Oh, you know, whatever the reason, they found sewn into the walls of the suitcase, uh, 3.6 kg of opium. Uh, the guy that night when, I, when, when he informed me that they found narcotics on me, the first thing, my, my heart just dropped. I felt like such a fool. I felt like such an idiot. I, I couldn't believe that my friend was, had done this to me. You know, it was too good to be true. And I'd worked for this man several trips. I'd known him for years. And it was, it was just a sucker punch to the face that someone could do this to somebody else. Um, and then I said something that you never want to say when you're on vacation. I said, I need to speak with the American embassy. And the, the man that uh, had uh, found the narcotics tells me, embassy can't help you. We're going to hang you after five o'clock prayer. Now I, I freaked out. They said I tried to, they said I tried to escape that day. And I, I wasn't trying to escape. I was just simply trying to find a phone. And I found a phone. But my whole goal was if I'm going to die, I'm going to make my life count. And I wanted to warn the others because it wasn't, you know, I wanted to tell every, I wanted to call my mom or someone or my manager. I was trying to call my manager. I don't know why I was, uh, that was, that's who I was trying to call, but because everyone knew the trips I was making, but I wanted to say, Hey, look, other people are making these trips. You got to warn them, you know? Well, DEA members came to the uh, airport and told me that they were joking. The guy was joking. You don't, I don't know how you can joke about something like that, but uh, I was a scared 21-year-old meathead, and uh, I thought, okay, DEA is here. They're going to help me now. They're going to get me out of here, and uh, no, they uh, these guys didn't believe a word out of my mouth. You know, To them, it's in your possession, so you're guilty. It doesn't matter that you didn't know about it. You're guilty because you're, you know, they... I, you know, obviously everyone says, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, so it's easier for them to assume the worst, but... There are people, I know for a fact, there are a lot of people that are innocent, especially when it comes to drug smuggling, because drug drug smugglers or people who are in the drug industry are shameless. They will get the product across any way they can. If they can get you to do it without keeping you in on it, they, they, they don't have to pay you what you're really worth, and they figure you won't draw suspicion to yourself because you don't know you're being used to transport anything illegal, and it happens all the time, all the time. Um Everyone, when I went to jail, was trying to recruit me because I was an American. They were like, oh, hey, because you, you're a good-looking American. Here, here's, a great, here's a great example. The Nigerians were relentless. They wanted me to work for them. And I'm like, guys, I don't fucking do this. I'm not a drug smuggler. And they're like, mm-hmm, sure. I'm like, nope, I'm not. And the guy's like, all right, anyways, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to send you to any country, like Afghanistan. You'll find a woman there who's like a, a widow. Make her fall in love with you. It should be easy. You tell her you're going to bring her back to your country. And then uh, you pack all her belongings with drugs. And if she gets caught, you say, I don't know this woman. I don't know her. 
And I was like, wow, you guys are fucking monsters. And that was just one example. Another guy told me, he says, this is what I do. And like, and these guys are like, they don't care. Like they, they're, they're not bragging, but they're just like, this is what I do. This is life. One guy would go and find families with a lot of kids. And, uh, he would talk to the family, say, look, I can, I want to adopt your youngest and bring them back to, to my, to my country. I can treat them right. Give them a future, give them a chance. So he says it works all the time. And then he'll kill the kid and put narcotics because drug sniffing dogs can't smell narcotics through a decomposing corpse. Is that disgusting? Those are just two of the ways that people were, were trying to recruit me and they are shameless about it. I've, I've lived with the worst people on earth. I've heard how the worst people on earth take advantage of others, how they make this place even worse and they have no shame about it. Or that it's just like, you know what, this is it. This is what I'm going to do to make, to get ahead in life. Drug smugglers are shameless. So when I got used to unknowingly smuggle narcotics, it was actually pretty tame on how people can sometimes get used to do it. Um, when I was in jail, uh, I was I was the only American there. Someone put a 5,000 rupee bounty on my head. People kept trying to collect it. 5,000 rupees is only worth $87 back in the day. $1 was roughly 60 rupees. So I was stabbed. I was hit by rakes. People kept trying to throw razor blades on me. Uh, the thing I had going for me was that I was strong as fuck and I was bigger than everybody. Cause you were uh, almost had like a bodybuilding physique. Yeah. I was 225. I was benching 420 pounds. I was just, I mean, I didn't do steroids or anything. My, my drug of choice was the gym. You know, I, those are the roles I got. I got meathead roles. I got jock roles. I got, you know, football player, wrestler, you know, hockey player roles. I always got the meathead roles. Um, and on, when I played football, I was the I was the crazy guy in kickoff. I was the wedge buster. I was the guy that went and torpedoed everything. I I couldn't play football in this day and age because all I did was leave with the crown on my head, and I, it looked like someone took a box of Crayola to the top of my helmet because I was just tacking everybody. Um, Didn't you set a record for tackles? One hundred and forty-seven, I, I believe. I have a record for tackles for the for a defensive end in California, and I, I mean I'd love to know if any of the other states have that beat too. But I have one hundred and forty-seven tackles in one season in 11 games uh, for a defensive end. I mean, there's people that have, who are safety. Safeties are supposed to get all the tackles. And there's like a guy who had like 202, but he was a safety. But there's no defensive lineman who's got anywhere near the amount of tackles I have. And I played defensive end. And the reason why I was so, so fucking good was because uh, I was a trouble kid. I was always getting in trouble. My mom was very smothering and controlling. So she would uh, take classes at the college. She didn't want to leave me at home alone. So she says, you have to come to the college with me and you can either sit in on my classes or you can go take your own classes. I didn't want to hang out with my mom. So I took my own classes at the local junior college up in the Antelope Valley. And the classes that I was taking was uh, f spring football, uh, weightlifting, JC football, and also um, uh, like the fundamentals of JC football. So I was playing with, the, with, the, with, with college age men and people who had graduated from all the high schools. And I was playing with them and I was working out with them and I was learning from them. Um, and I was only 14 years old. So 15, I go back to, to school and I, and I, I just destroy, you know, all the records I always have. I have broke, broke the records for tackles when I, my sophomore year at the school was at, and I got kicked out of the school because I went on, um, that was a school that I had gotten arrested at for fighting at the Bishop. So I was on probation for that. Well, then I got kicked out right after football season because we had a, a, a local radio station up there in hot 97.7. And they invited uh, the kids from my school because we had a kazoo band and they thought it was funny. So they brought the kazoo band onto the radio show like to play kazoo songs in between the, the songs. 
And when we introduced ourselves, I said, <laughs> everyone was introducing themselves and being clever. I said, my name's Randy Thompson and I'm a chronic bedwetter. Randy Thompson was this kid on my team I didn't, I didn't like. And uh, his dad was a huge booster contributor. Uh-oh. And uh, this guy went to the school that following Monday and made them kick me out of school. And they did because they're, and I was on probation anyway. So I got kicked out of school. Uh, and then uh, I did, all, did homeschool for the rest of my sophomore year, but I still had, I was doing all these college credits and I was taking my sophomore year, I'm 15 years old, I'm taking 23 units at the local junior college and I'm doing all my homeschooling. Um, and I started setting records at the, uh, the college. Like they had this thing, like the most um, military reps for your weight class. And at the time, uh, I'm 15 years old, I'm 195 pounds. And I, I, put, I put it up 36 times, which is eight more than anyone else for my, and these are grown men. And then I did the most dips. I did 88 dips. And I don't know if that record still stands there, but I just, all I did was work out. That's because I was always in trouble. And I had gyms in my, my gym set in my room. I just, I had prison workout in my room. Uh, so I go to a new school junior year and this new school is a small school called Bethel Christian and their best record was like three and eight. They, they were a terrible school. And I take us to, uh, I, I, our, our team became the most feared team in the, we turned it around. I got everyone to start working out harder. Um, and when I was on the field, I just set records left and right. Most sacks, most hurries, most tackles. And it was just, it was because I was playing for, I was playing, I was playing with kids when I should have been playing with men, you know? Junior year at the college, I was a vet at the college, yet I'm still in high school. And they had me starting on the junior college football uh, defensive line. And the coaches every year, they're like, what the hell? You're not in college yet? And I'm like, I got to go. What do you mean you got to go? I got hell week starting. <laughs> it was, And then senior year was the same thing. Like I was the most vet uh, player on the team because I'd been there four years now, yet I'm still in high school. So that's how I was able to set the record was because I always knew where the ball was going to go simply by how someone was leaning on the line. If you just watch the line, someone's leaning a little to the right. Someone's leaning a little to the left. Someone's you know, a little anxious to get off back there. So I could always basically tell which hole that ball was going to go in. And I would go and line up in whichever hole I wanted. And the coach just started letting me do my own thing. He's like, Ade knows what's up. Let him do it. <laughs> You're like Troy Palomalu of, of uh, the Antelope Valley high school system. I mean, I went to a small school, so it, it, was, it wasn't really fair. I should have played for a bigger school, but my mom didn't want me to go to public school. She wanted me to go to a private school. And, I, you know, the private schools at the time were, weren't that big. Uh, they are now, Paraclete is a powerhouse now. We have alumni at Paraclete who, who was on the Broncos uh, Super Bowl winning team. Okay. Yeah, and that guy only had 87 tackles his senior year in high school. <laughs> that dude's playing in, in the NFL. I mean, I was a Notre Dame <laughs> high man myself. Uh, that was a good school. When did you graduate? I graduated 86, uh, but just a couple years after me, Justin Fargus. Yeah, no, Justin. Who uh, ended up playing on the Raiders? His, da- uh, his dad was—he graduated in my year. His dad was in the show business, but no, Justin and I—I uh, I knew Justin because we went to all the the um, camps together. See, I'm old enough to remember his dad, Antonio Fargus, has Huggy Bear, the pimp in Starsky and Hutch. I, I remember him, and uh, and I'm gonna get you, sucker. Oh, he was a legendary. Yeah. He was in a lot of the uh, black exploitation films. Yeah. No, Farg- so, Fargus is great. Yeah. So he was pretty much the uh, the most famous athlete to come out of. Well, we had Jack McDowell, who was a very famous baseball pitcher. You guys had a nice quarterback come out of there too, I think. Uh, I mean, not when I was there. <laughs> I, uh, 
Uh, my niece just graduated from there, and she's ranked as a tennis player. Her name's uh, uh, Avery Ade. Oh, okay. Yeah, she's a great tennis player. They have a great sports program. I mean, uh, when I was there uh, in the mid-'80s, we, we had the number one baseball team in the country. Oh, really? Uh, that's when Jack McDowell was the pitcher. Wow. It was so weird to see. Uh, you know, he ended up winning Cy Young Award uh, later on, I think, with the White Sox. But to see a, a kid... It's kind of like how you describe your football. Like he was a man among boys. Like he was throwing ninety plus miles an hour and oh like Jesus against kids with acne and like, <laughs> this is like <laughs> this doesn't seem fair. He's like, why don't you swing? I don't know. I didn't even know it was coming. Oh, they it was too late. I mean, by the time the catcher hit the mitt, close your eyes and just swing. Yeah, pray for dear life. Um. So, like, when you getting back to I, I had so many questions. Uh, what. So you're going through customs in Pakistan. At what point do you start to go, uh-oh, what are they doing? Like, uh, I, I, I mean, do they like I never, take... I was never worried. I was never worried. The only thing I was worried about was missing my flight. When the guy grabs my... Like one guy, one person went through my stuff, everything was fine. And then I was about to go through, through the metal detectors when someone else grabbed my arm and says, are you carrying narcotics? And I said, check it again. Like, I didn't care. Check it again. So they, but this jackass took that suitcase, only that suitcase, not my bag, not my stuff, just the suitcase, opened it and threw all the jackets on the ground. Now I'm pissed because I'm there for those jackets right. and I'm, I'm in the middle of this airport with people watching me. I'm embarrassed and I'm folding up all this stuff because that's what I'm there for. And they bring me to another room, uh, uh, another room and time's starting to go by and I'm like, I don't want to miss my flight. Destroy the suitcase. I don't care. Do you guys have bags or another suitcase for me? I don't care about the fucking suitcase. I just want to, I don't want to miss my flight. I want to get out of here. And then the hallway started filling up with guards. And then the guy who grabbed my arm comes in, followed by another guard. Cause this guy was in a suit and the guards were in their own uniforms. And he says, well, what is this? And I go, he's holding it. Meaning like he should know exactly what it is because he's the one holding it. He said, this is all for him. And the second he said that, I'm just like, I was like, wow, uh, why are you showing me this? He says it came out of your luggage and it two plus two became four very quickly. I knew I had been duped. I knew I'd been uh, taken advantage of. I've been tricked. And I felt, uh, I felt fucking dumb. My heart dropped. Um, and honestly, I said, I need to speak with the American embassy. And said, embassy can't help you. We're going to hang you after five o'clock prayer. And I panicked. Uh, I panicked and a lot of guards tried to grab me. And I started, I just bulldozed my way through and went into the hallway uh, looking for a place to go. I ran down the hallway. Some guy shot up the whole hallway with other people in it. Everyone hit the ground instinctively. And I bashed through another uh, door at the end of the hall and started barricading it with desk and everything. And I got on the phone, but I couldn't get out. I couldn't get out to an out the outline. I mean, I didn't understand what they were saying. I was dialing, you know, my country code and all that. Um, they couldn't get in, but there was nowhere for me to go. And I was worried they were just going to shoot up the whole wall and everything. And, uh, I was panicking. I was scared as fuck. I was so scared. Uh, then I hear, uh, here banging on the door and says, you wanted to speak to an American? I said, are you from the embassy? He said, DEA. And I was like, eh, what, what uh, state are you from? He says, Texas. And I'm a tech. Everyone knows Texas. Who's your favorite football team? He says, Cowboys. I'm like, Dallas, they suck. You know? Uh, and I'm, you know, I don't know. I was, trust me, the way I did it was not cool back in the day. I wish I'd done it differently, but I was scared. And I was panicking. I didn't want to come out. I said, he said, you want to come out and talk? I said, they said they're going to hang me. 
And then he talked to somebody in uh, Urdu and he comes back and goes, they were a kid him. So I opened the door and there's all these rifles on me. He's like, you can talk to us, but you don't have to. I go, yes, I want to talk to the DEA. Of course I want to talk to you guys. All right. He goes, don't try to run. He goes, we can't help you if you try to run. I go, where am I going to go? So I'm being led across the airport and there's like three guards on each arm. Like these guys, some guys putting their hand on my shoulder, like that's helping. They just all want to be part of bringing me across. And they present me in front of the, um, the, the, the narcotics and everything. But now they've taken all my clothing and put it in that suitcase. Like my DVD, my had a portable DVD player, had a cell phone, my, my wallet, they had all that stuff and they put it all in there to make it look like that's that one suitcase is mine, even though I had uh, a suitcase, a bag, a backpack and my bag. So they made it all three and clumped it into one. So I'm thinking, all right, the DEA's here. Things are going to be good. Enjoy it. So once again, I'm being photographed in front of these guys. And what am I doing? Same thing I did when I was 15, getting arrested. I'm smiling, smiling like, hey, Eric, enjoy it. It's going to be a fun story one day. Uh, so these guys think I'm not taking it seriously. And I'm like, well, no, I'm taking it seriously, but everyone knows what I'm doing. So once you guys contact my family, they're going to know that I'm innocent and then I'm going to be let go. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking there's no way because it's not just my word. It's everyone's word and mine. Well, they bring me to an office and there's three DEA agents in the office and there's one guy at the, um, at the table. That guy, he's a Pakistani. I'm assuming it's his office because he's in there. He doesn't say anything though. And all the guards stay outside the office. Now these guys are just, one guy started smoking. This guy's sitting to my right. This guy's standing up and pacing. And they all start bombarding me with questions like they're trying to catch me in a lie. And I'm answering these questions. And this guy's like, well, where were you going to go after this? I was like, to uh, Stockholm. And the guy goes, well, there's no direct flights to Stockholm. I was like, we were going to go uh, via U of A and then uh, Heathrow. And then he's like, why not? And he goes, see, those are all drugs. And he starts naming all these routes. Like, these are all drug smuggling routes. Right. And I'm like, why don't you just name the only two countries that aren't on the drug smuggling routes? And then this guy's asking me questions. I'm halfway through an answer. And then this guy tries to ask me a question. Like, they're trying to twist my words around. And they said, why, why, why Stockholm? Why? And I go, because I always hook up there. I got a lot of friends there. And this guy's like, what's their names, huh? Hmm? What's their names? I'm like, you're not their type. Don't worry about it. And uh, obviously it became very apparent that these guys didn't believe a word I was saying. And they weren't going to help me. So I finally said, guys, look, I know I'm fucked, but other people are making these trips. You got to warn them. Give me some benefit of the doubt. And I gave him all the information to Ray Gazarian and my mother. So contact my mother, contact the gym, contact these guys. These these people will vouch that I was what I was doing, that I was hired to smuggle. Sorry, don't use the word smuggle. That I was hired to transport leather goods. That's right. all it was. So the guards, they start getting, uh, they, they start making fun of me. You know, they say I'm being cocky. And the guy, like one guy puts his hand on my chest, actually. And he's like, your heart's going crazy right now. What, what, why are you so nervous? What do you mean? I just got told I'm going to get hung after five o'clock prayer. You guys don't believe a word I'm saying. And then this one dude, jackass said to me, he goes, you know, if you don't get life in this prison or death, he goes, you're going to end up serving 25, you know, 15, 25, 15 to 25 years. And then when you get back into America, you're going to serve another 10 to 15 years. And I knew he was full of shit there because it's, you know, I, I even said there's the movie Double Jeopardy with Ashley Judd. Right, so, right. So so I was already in a bad situation and this guy was trying to make it worse for no reason. Like, there was no reason to do that. And even though I'm a dumb 21-year-old kid, I knew that much at least. Yeah, still, it's mind-blowing that you're just 21 going through all this. Yeah, yeah, no, my life was... My life was supposed to be starting out and it was starting to do good. Well, the guard's last words before he left the room were it was, he's all yours. And I got hit with a rifle. I got, I got rushed out of there and I got transported to this, um, 
customs lockup, which is uh, a way ways from the airport. Uh, well, they put me in a in a cell with a bunch of other prisoners, and pretty quickly it was uh, it was obvious that uh, I was not liked. Uh, someone asked me what country. I told them America, and I was getting in fights with all these old men. They were like, like fist fights. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Like it's not look. I was <laughs> I was stronger than everyone. I fought all my brothers. I got in fights growing up. I was the guy. I was the guy on the football field who didn't look for somebody else to make the play. I expected to make the play. So fighting for me was fun growing up. You know. <laughs> so when these assholes are picking fights with me, I mean they're. <laughs> I, I didn't think I think I guess they thought their numbers would help them but no their numbers don't help them when they're weak as fuck and they're not unless they're like you working if they worked together I would have been fucked but they weren't working together so I'm smashing these guys and the guards are like damn it so they bring me out of the cell and put me in another cell with like only other two prisoners in this cell and these two prisoners were just old men didn't want anything to do with me and that's when the embassy came and this woman from the embassy a girl named Christy brings the little Pakistani interpreter who would end up jacking all my money with her. Um, and she says to me, she goes, uh, when I first saw her walk in, she was being escorted in. She was, trust me, she was like a diamond in, 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 in the rough there. I mean, it was nice to see a, a, a friendly, pretty face. And my first words were, if I'd known uh, I'd be meeting someone as pretty as you, I would have gotten arrested a long time ago. And she goes, yep, he's from California. <laughs> And she says, how are you doing? I said, great. She goes, really? And I'm like, no, what's going to happen? And so I, she goes, well, you're being charged with a 9C. Uh, a 9C is, you know, here's, they don't understand that, trust me, the embassy is just as clueless as you are. They, they don't know what the rules are for certain things until they have to come across it and learn it on the whim. Um, but they have a very strict policy when it's narcotics related. They do not get involved. All they can do is, is observe and say, hey, you can't treat our guy any differently than you're treating somebody else. Unfortunately, in Pakistan, that's it's not a good thing. Right. In Pakistan, they have a thing called physical remand, all right? Physical remand is exactly what it sounds like. They figure if they can't uh, get the truth out of you, they can beat it out of you. Physical remand is torture. And... The Christy from the embassy says to me that I'm going to be presented in front of the lower court magistrate the next day and uh, that he's going to decide how many days that I'm going to get. Um, well, I would end up getting tortured for the next three days for information I didn't have. Um, on the third day, they simply wanted me to admit the drugs were mine. I refused to admit anything. Uh, I mean, did you watch the documentary? I have not yet. No? But can I... When you say torture, like with, I, I don't want to drudge up bad memories for you, but like just uh, like waterboarding stuff like that. Uh, yeah, they they beat the bottom of my feet, ask me a round of questions. Um, they electrocute me, ask me the same questions. They hang me up like a punching bag, ask the same questions. They drown me in a water tank and ask the same questions, and then they just go about it. It's a job for them. They're not masochists. They're not like getting off on it. It's just their job. Their job is to torture people for confessions that's simply it and for more information to get more people arrested if possible but they just wanted a confession out of me um now what uh the reason why i was able to handle this is because when i was uh eight years old i was in third grade i was run over by a school bus run over not hit <laughs> not knocked down run over by a school bus my 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 pelvis was shattered like a glass jar is how i describe it because that's what it was um, doctor said I wasn't going to make it through the night. 
Then I made it through the night. They said, he's definitely not going to make it through the week. Made it through the week. <laughs> what a uh, life. Was the pers- first person on earth to have their urethra severed and reconnected. Have had over 50 surgeries to make that happen. Um, was told to never walk again. Obviously, I did. I was told I could never play a contact sport. <laughs> I got a record. So here I am being tortured for information I don't have. And I'm laughing because it's like it's, it's, it's like I've been prepared my whole fucking life for what was going to happen to me in a sick sense, a sick way. If anyone was built to go to prison, it was me. If anyone was built to go to prison, it was me. And I'm not like, oh, ha, that's great. It's just like, wow, my life has been anything but amazing in my own eyes. It's been tough. I had to walk three miles just to get to school. I had to, uh, you know, my, my, you know, my mom, she, did what she thought was right, but she was just a very controlling, smothering woman. And I, I had, I know, getting beat for no reason for doing my homework after eight o'clock was a normal thing. And I'd literally be up at 10 trying to do my homework while, you know, my crazy mother was like being held out here going crazy because I was up past my eight o'clock bedtime. Just a very bad situation. So I, I never had a great life and wanting to be smarter and stronger was my motivation to get, to get out of the Antelope Valley, to get away from to her and to build a good life for myself. And being an actor and a stuntman was, was something that was fun and interesting to me. And I wanted to, I wanted to be respected in those fields. I wanted to, I wanted to be somebody. I didn't want to be a nobody. And I didn't want laziness to be the reason that I didn't get my dreams. Like failure for me wasn't an option. Success was the only option. And here I was the last guy. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't do drugs. I was just guilty of being trusting, of believing that someone couldn't do this to somebody else. And I'm in jail for a crime I didn't commit, getting tortured right after 9-11. And the only thing I had uh, to hold on to was anger for the man that set me up, but also my pride of knowing that I had not, I didn't do this. So there's no way in hell I was ever going to you know, admit to something I didn't do. I'm still under the illusion that I'm going to get out soon. And so when I went into prison... And like I said, when, when guys go into prison uh, in, in, pa- in Pakistan, there's these guys called number darts who get to shake down all the new prisoners. Usually they bring them in in six to 12 at a time. So you got one-on-one or two-on-one. Well, the guard here, they unshackle me. They have me do my thumbprint. And then I see on the big bulletin board how many prisoners they have. They use block, these like little blocks, the kind of same blocks they use for Scrabble for the numbers and how many under trials and everything else. And, uh, the guard on my left is like putting his hands up like boxy boxy. And I'm like, just open the fucking gate. And I just wanted to, because I just been tortured for three fucking days. I'm pissed. I'm hungry. My feet are killing me. And now I get to fight. I'm happy because I want to fucking dish it back. Uh, so he opens the gate and I went crashing through and smushing them because I didn't want these guys to surround me. And I kept backpedaling on the courtyard uh, so they couldn't get around me. Uh well, I, uh, I held myself very well that day. Uh, well, when I first got in and there was a small Mishakati, Mishakati are prison workers. They are guys who, uh, you know, they, they run messages, they clean, they put the chalk on the ground because they're always having to read, they have to paint to make the place look, they have chores and they do all the, uh, they, they get assigned to chores. Well, this Mishakati was like, la, la, la. And uh, he, I, obviously he wasn't going to fight. I mean, this guy was like 4'10". He was tiny. Uh, and when he, he like grabbed my wrist to follow him. So I followed this guy where all these guys were pissed off that they wanted to fight still, but they didn't want to fight anymore. 
and I followed him to one of the barracks. There was a processing barrack, and you're supposed to stay there for a few days until they decide where to put you. And and uh, I didn't stay there for a few minutes. As soon as I got in the processing barrack, I was already in a fight. It was right after mosque. There's a big mosque temple in the middle of the prison, and that's where everyone was praying. So I get to the processing barrack, and mosque was just letting out. So everyone started filling in there, and I was just wanting to sleep because I was tired. I was hungry. Uh, but everyone, I could feel people in my bubble. And sure enough, someone says the same question that they said at the customs lockup. They said, uh, uh, you American? I was like, nope, Pakistani, born and raised. Raised right down the road, you know. <laughs> that guy's holding up a big newspaper, front page, and there's my dumbass, you know, with my photos. And, <laughs> and they're like, that's you. I'm like, that doesn't even look like me. And I'm in a fight this time that I can't win. There's just two fucking many of them. I feel like the Santa Claus and Gremlins, and I'm, these guys are on my back, and I fling one guy off the, off the uh, second story balcony onto the crowd below who was on my back and the guards baton charge. They hit everyone back. They start hitting me with the batons and they, uh, they take me to Kasori. You know, I get, I get shoved, walked all the way to a different part of the prison. Kasori and, uh, Kasori is, is, uh, is punishment cell in prison. It's a, it's a dark closet. It's, um, the only time you see light is when they take you out to beat the bottom of your feet once a day but also when they feed you once a day and what do they feed you they feed you uh dal which is like a lentil soup just one cup of dal and a roti which is uh, like a tortilla and you know that's not enough to sustain me that's not enough i mean they feed you three times a day when you're in the regular prison but it's just they carry a bucket around that's being that's being followed by a bunch of meowing cats and then they take this big spoon and the guy who's doing it has got hair and he's dirty and whatnot and he's putting the spoon in the bucket he's using the spoon to eat his own food he's he's feeding the oh. cats with it and he's feeding the prisoners with it um well i would spend the uh, the first i mean i would spend my first five days in kasori uh in prison but i would spend a total of a uh, 132 days in uh in kasori of my three years that i would be in jail in pakistan eight weeks of them in a row was the longest i spent in there and what was like the uh, the light at the end of the tunnel of, hey, I might get out of here. In jail? Yeah. Oh, God. Well. I mean, was there like. Uh, yeah, I mean, I never, you know, I wanted to get back. At the time, I had, uh, I had a girl that I had wanted to get back to, a girl that I had loved ever since I was uh, five. <laughs> I've been there. Yeah. There was a girl that for some reason, I mean, she wasn't just. Wanting to get away from the Antelope Valley where I studied so hard or I went to the gym so long, it was because I wanted to be good enough for this girl one day. And we would date on and off, but her, her mother hated me. Her mother hated me. Her mother was a teacher's aide in second grade, and uh, I squirted her with glue and threw her sweater into a mud pot, a puddle, and she never forgave me. So she made sure that her daughter and I were never allowed to be together. Um, so... Now I'm an adult, and uh, the day before I got arrested, it was Valentine's Day, and I got a, uh, an email and I, from, uh, from Missy saying that her mom had died from cancer, and she sent it in a big group text email. And uh, the first thing I thought was, oh, fuck yeah, I can finally go and date this girl, you know, that's because I was a dipshit, you know, I was like, but, but this is the woman, the reason why her and I couldn't date, like even in her, her adult years, Missy still lived with her, her mom. So, 
you know, she did, she didn't want to disobey her, but here I'm thinking, all right, uh, I could finally be with this girl. So I send an email. Hey, Missy, I'm so sorry. I will be home next week. I'm there for you. Whatever you need. I love you. And, uh, the very next day I got arrested. <laughs> so my whole life since I was five and wanting to be with this girl, I finally can be with her and then I get arrested. Now, the first year in, in jail, Missy would, would write to me all the time. You know, she's like, I'm sorry you're there and I love you and I can't wait to be together. Like now she wants to be with me because she realizes she, uh, that, you know, she realizes she's got feelings for me. And before it was one-sided, you know, you like, you like someone and they never like you quite the same. It's just, oh, I do. It's just weird how that works. But this one girl, for some reason I had, you know, for, I just always was in love with her. I always raised her on a huge pedestal and she was my motivation to study longer, to work out uh, harder, to, to become an actor and a stuntman, to impress her. And I did that. And eventually my goals changed and I did it for me, but I all did it all for her. And so she was my motivation to get out of prison. Um, and the longest days I spent in uh, Kasori, all I did was think about her. I thought about us being together one day and I thought about just getting back to her and starting a life with her. And that got you through, like, because I can imagine there's some days in prison where you just go, wow, this sucks. Oh, oh, there's all kinds of days like that. There's all kinds of days like that. But then there were days where, you know, I'd say to myself, I, I'd see the guy who who got all his food taken away from him and he was starving. I'd see the other guy who was getting beat up by the other prisoner and he couldn't defend himself. And I'd see the 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 French guy who who didn't speak a word of English or Urdu, so no one understood him. And I think to myself, man, I'm lucky. In here, I can defend myself. I learned the language so people, uh, you know, can understand me and I can understand them. At least I have people on the outside trying to do something for me. So I'm technically not on my own. You know, I'm lucky. Even in the bad spot like that, I would focus on the positives. I would, I would focus on keeping my mind sharp and I, would, I didn't waste my time. I was, I was learning anywhere from 20 to 40 words a day. I was uh, keeping the place... Uh, looking better so people you know were appreciating it the guards were all working for me uh you know this and this made them happier they they weren't beating prisoners as much i said that i basically protected my whole cell block i said to, by telling the guards you're not going to shake down prisoners in here anymore you'll you'll make money you'll make a lot of money but you got to work for it and working for it meant bringing food in bringing right. things that passed our time or books vcds um you know uh cell phones uh, and the guards were happy that they were making a lot of money and not having to fight for it you know but, right but it, but it but it, it took me learning the language it took me adjusting to the situation it, it took me having all taking some of the worst beatings that i ever took because you have to defend yourself you have to um you know my in my documentary i mean i hope you don't i hope you go watch it i will now it, speaking of the documentary if people want to see it they can go on your website www dot yeah if if uh well they go they can it's on my link on my Instagram um if they go on Instagram Eric A Day uh Eric it's the 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 Eric A Day story yes right uh and that's uh E R I K correct A U D E and it's on it's on it's on like thirty streaming platforms they can get it on iTunes which is I have Netflix not no no like not yet one day one day yeah. But they can get it on Amazon, uh, VOD, YouTube Red, Frontier, PlayStation. Um, iTunes is the most popular. There's, there's a bunch of different ways to get it, and they can rent it. Um, and like I said, I have a link on my Instagram. 
if they want to go on there. And, and the thing that's been great about this is that when people have been watching it, they've been they've been taking a lot of positive uh, things from it. They've been appreciating their own life so much more. They figure if I can get through all the crazy stuff that I've had to go through, then they should easily be able to get through whatever troubles they've been having to deal with. And I'm not saying my, my documentary is a magic pill or anything, but everyone that has watched it so far that has reached out to me has said this has you know, made me really appreciate my life so much more. Um, and it also arms them with the information that this stuff happens. You know, people do trick people into unknowingly smuggling narcotics for them all the time. And I've had, I've had people contact me saying, look, I was about to make a trip that sounded a lot like what you did. And uh, I, I said no. And it was because I, I heard of your story that I was able to say no. Um, this, this girl told me that she was being offered some kind of deal and she was being paid crazy money, but they were still keeping her in the dark about it. And I'm like, you're, you're being, you're there. They want you to smuggle narcotics. Do not do it. It is too good to be true. She's like, yeah, it is. I go block that person, never contact them again. And they never went on the trip. And I have someone I would like you to meet. Uh, I had an, let's just say a woman from my past, uh, she calls me up a few months ago. Now you tell me if I was wrong in telling her this. She was like, yeah, this guy wants me to go to Germany for $10,000 and pick up some jewelry for him. All I have, it's so much your story right now from the standpoint of, uh, yeah, and all I have to do is just pick up this watch and bracelets and, and I'm like, uh, so-and-so it's probably a scam i mean it, whatever that whatever that watch or jewelry is is probably in a package that is drug laced or drug filled and i begged of her please don't go and she didn't as far as i know and she's like earl you've seen too many movies which might be true but it's like her name if this was such an easy gig to do, you think the guy would pay you ten grand to do it? He would just do it himself. I was getting eight hundred, and I thought that was too good to be true. Ten thousand? Uh, yeah. What more of a red flag do you need? Well, I'm a negative person <laughs> by nature, so you, I'm. You like, have to be. You have to be in this day and age because people will take advantage of you. Well, Big time. I, I mean, I, I was raised. You, you and I sound like we're a little bit alike. Uh, like my mom, uh, if I could. She raised me to be negative, but in some ways I'm glad she did because she basically raised me as someone's all, always out to fuck you, which is why I'm so paranoid in anyone I deal with. Uh, what, what's your angle? What are you trying to get out of me? But in some cases, that's a good thing. Uh, so I do hope your story, because uh, there are a lot of con artists, and I find there's a lot with women. Like, you're a big, strong dude. You got through... Uh, what you got through mainly on your physical strength or not mainly, but in part through your physical strength, but you know, a girl over, I mean, game over, uh, you know, if, if you know, you get, I know I wouldn't, I'm sure that if, if, if the girls in our, in our jail were, uh, were sold to other prisoners and you would hear them getting raped at night, they would bring them in from the women's prison into the other parts of the prison and you hear them screaming. I mean, that was my, one of my questions was, uh, you know, uh, I know in, in a lot of the prison movies I've seen the, the high currency was uh, in the longest yard, which is one of my favorite. Uh, it's more of a football movie than a, the old one or the new one. Please. Oh. I only acknowledge old one. one. Got it. Got it. Burt Reynolds. Yeah, that's good. Re well, he was in the new one too, but <laughs> the yeah. first Burt Reynolds yeah. longest yeah. yard, yeah. Uh, there was a guy in, in the movie called caretaker. And, and as he's being introduced to Burt Reynolds, 
they were like, he can get you anything. Game film on the guards. He can get you booze. He can even get you laid by a woman. How was that like? I, I'm assuming straight sex in any prison is the highest form of currency. Was that like ever offered to you in terms of like, hey, for this amount of money, we can get you laid by a woman? It was not the highest form of currency. Not in not in not in Pakistan. Really? Oh no. Uh, there was something more sought after than straight sex. Yeah, drugs. Drugs are. People want hashish in there. People want heroin in there. There's a lot of drug addicts in prison. Um, you can get anything. You can get anything you want into that jail. Anything. It's it's not it's not an exaggeration. Uh, I could have gotten women in there if I wanted to, but it would have been you know it wouldn't have been consensual because what they do is they oh, sell right. they sell the, the the prison women over there. They sell in them, so the prison women are getting raped uh, in the jails. Um, rape would happen in the barracks mostly where there was like just hundreds and hundreds of people and they would rape uh the weaker ones in the in the the shower and the the squat toilet which would all the squat toilet was your shower there was no like community showers you had to where, where you went to the restroom is where you would wash your vegetables where you wash your clothes where you go to the bathroom where you take your shower it was your one-stop shop and that's where in the uh barracks where they would just lock hundreds of prisoners up with no guards in there together and they just do free reign or whatever they wanted to do. So I was lucky that because I was an American, I had my own cell. That was a huge luxury. I was thankful, thankful for that. Had I been in the barracks, it would have been probably a lot worse for me. Just because you're out, you said it in some of the fights you had, at some point you're just outnumbered. You're just outnumbered. Nothing and, you can do. And as big as you were. Well, they wouldn't have put me in the Pakistani barracks. They would have put me in the foreigner barracks where all the Nigerians were. And the Nigerians... Uh, they, I know the Nigerians raped a bunch of, uh, Romanians that got, there was a group of Romanians that got arrested that raped them all. And those guys got, got sentenced to only two years in prison and they all killed themselves because they couldn't handle what was happening to them in the barracks. Now, uh, I would imagine, you know, like, I'm not trying to get myself into the story, but like, I know if I miss a day or two of working out, I get depressed. Like literally, uh depression issues i uh, could it just makes me feel better mentally you came into this prison like a physical god i wouldn't say god i just but was, i mean my goal was to be you know i wanted to be physically gifted yeah, i wanted to be a i mean i was a stunt actor and i wanted to be the you know, main bad guy that fought the the good guys and i I liked working out. I just did. I just liked working out. Well, for me, going to the gym and doing my homework at the gym between takes was was what I enjoyed doing. And I loved. Like I wanted to be stronger than everyone on the football field. I want, and, and then it carried over when football was over, and I was still, I still had the mentality of everything working out and growing up, and staying in shape for 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 the roles. And that's why I was getting a lot of work because uh, you know I'd walk into the room like, oh, this guy, you know, he looks the part. Now can he act? <laughs> <laughs> but like when you went to this prison, I'm assuming they didn't have like a, you know uh, a weights gym? and no, shit. like no, you had to you have to get creative when it comes to working out, and I got very creative. Um, I would do upside down push ups against the wall. I do I would do push ups forever. I would fill up. Uh, I you give me buckets of water. You, you have to haul in the buckets of water from a different part of the prison, and you know every day. Uh, that's what you know you use to clean yourself, wash your stuff, and. So I would keep the I'd I'd work out with the buckets of water. Um, there's all well. I also later on I would pay uh, prisoners to make weights for me, and you, you would use a coffee can and put some cement that the you can get anything in that prison as long as you there's a will. 
find right. a good stick. You can get two coffee cans of cement on each side, and next thing you know, you got barbells and dumbbells. And they would get taken away from me all the time because, you know, when when they have to do talashis, which are searches, they they have to find something to show they're doing their job. And you know, most of the time, I just pay the guards pack a couple packs of cigarettes and some money and then I'd hide my stuff around so before the talashis came but occasionally they they couldn't uh they had to find stuff so they wouldn't give us a heads up and they would find it and take it away and then you just had to go and have them made again but I would get weights made I would get I would uh, do a lot of pull-ups by putting uh uh sheets around the bars on the upper window and just wrapping them around your hands you could do all kinds of pull-ups on the wall just get creative if you want to work out you can work out you don't need a gym you just need your mind well there's a will there's a way there's always a way if there's a will your mind is your most powerful weapon by far especially in prison You're, you know you can go you can wake up every day in a bad mood or you can wake up every day and like hey you know what i'm gonna have a good day fuck this place you can wake up with a smile you can even you make know, what's 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 G? What's more G? Is uh, letting these guys know they're getting to you or smiling at them while, <laughs> while they're doing the worst thing they can do? You know, well, it's at the biggest fuck you to them. <laughs> and that's what I did. Now, in a few hours on uh, FX, there's a great show called The Mayans. I'm a big Sons of Anarchy guy. Have you been watching the show? I have. I've watched. I love... Uh, I mean, I'm such a Sons of Anarchy fan. So I was so excited for The Mayans. To be, and you are on the Mayans, correct? I, I'm on the Mayans. I do uh, I do all the, the the motorcycle riding. I do all the stunts for uh, one of the, one of the leads, a guy named uh, Gilly on the show, the big guy. And I do all the motorcycle riding, but I've also filled in for like different spots for they wear masks or just you know I, I when the when the camera's far away, I just throw the helmet on and I ride the motorcycle, and it's been great. It's been it's been awesome to be able to. I'm I'm technically I'm a Mayan. I am a Mayan. <laughs> And it's oh, awesome. it's a great show. Yeah. Like it's, uh, and they have tough shoes to uh, fill. You know, Sons of Anarchy was such a great show, and uh, but they just it got picked up for a season two already. Uh, I, yeah, that was it's a it's a good thing. I mean, tonight's the, the ninth episode, and I I also play a reoccurring character, very small character character, but I'm the head of security at a, a the local Indian casino that they work at, and I'm the only white guy on staff, and I'm basically the most overpaid extra because I'm. Whenever they're at the casino, I will be there. And tonight, you'll just see me just walking through the crowd with them to get them to their next meeting place. Well, yeah, they had, uh, I think it was the, it's either the first or second episode where they had a meeting at the private casino uh, room and uh, there was uh, some guns, I think, hidden yeah. in the bar. You know, and, I see, uh, I, I hid the guns in there and then I led them to the room and then I hid the body that they, they killed. Uh, so <laughs> watch the Mayans tonight. Uh, as soon as you leave, this episode will be up in about 30 minutes. Um, but you know, your life is so interesting and I'm starting to get a vibe why you're so good at another thing you do, which is professional poker, because I can you, imagine you with what you've gone through. Uh, do you play? No, I'm too cheap. Uh, I'd rather buy a nice leather jacket than, uh, I love watching, uh, poker because i know i'll never do it so i can watch with just a purely an entertainment uh point where i don't have to like it's hard for me to watch hockey because i play so i'm always like okay what would i do if i was in that situation and like phil i think his name is phil middleman no there's phil helmuth phil phil helmuth phil Locke. I love phil helmuth three popular phil's in the in the in the poker world phil helmuth is my favorite 
Because he's a shit talker. Oh, yeah, I know. He gets, he gets mad. It's fun. People love to watch him explode and lose his mind. But away from the poker tables, he's actually a really good dude. He's a really nice guy. You know, and people only see, you know, the negative on when he plays. But he's, he's, a, he's a good dude. Well, he's entertaining to me. Just yeah. like when he starts to lose or, or <laughs> yeah, he's he, just like. He lets his emotions be known. <laughs> shoulders start slumping and his hat's on sideways. And he just, these deep breaths of, ah, fuck. And then he just starts, uh, you know, I don't know if he's playing it up for the cameras, but uh, he, he's very entertaining. But how do you go, how do you get into being a pro poker player? Well, I, I learned how to, the documentary definitely touches base on it. So me, I, I don't want to give away too much because yeah. I want people uh, to watch the documentary. I, 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 I do too. <laughs> I, I want the people that, you know, I, but like, can I, you, like uh, I can elaborate. I, I learned to play poker on death row in Pakistan. The first time I ever played a hand of Texas Hold'em poker was on death row. And um, when I got out, you know, and no one was helping me get back on my feet. I mean, I had a, I had my football coach lend me his car. I had a friend of mine give me a hundred bucks and that was it. My family wasn't helping me out. My family was trying to, my, my mom was trying to like have me be a kid again. And she thought she was going to give me rolls. And, you know, uh, she's like, if you're going to live under this, this roof, I'm like, first off, I'm was just in jail three years and that's being in jail any longer is not an option. <laughs> I'm going to get my life together. And that's what I did. And, uh, I was able to take my, my friend's hundred bucks to the local casino only because the traffic was so bad. It wasn't my intention. I, I didn't plan on like finding a casino and seeing what I could do, but in jail, I'll, I played so much poker that I got good at it. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I, I turned uh, the hundred dollars into 2,600 bucks the first night I was back. And then I, uh, I did the same thing with another $300 the next night for like 1700 bucks and, it was, I haven't, I've run good like that before, but it's, you know, I've run really bad, but it was, it was the start I needed to get back on my feet. And I was able to get a car by the end of the week at my own place. Um, um, and I, it, it helped me get back on my feet and get back in my life. Uh, to this day, I, I, I play the world series every year. I'm, I'm very known in the poker world. I, I travel back and forth to Vegas a lot. I've played all over the world. I played the Aussie Millions. I've played in Prague. I've played in uh, London. I've um, played in Japan. It's great. You know, I love poker. Poker is a, is, a, is a game that doesn't matter from what walk of life you come from, what you do in your career, or how much money you have. All that matters is what you do with those chips in front of you at the table. And the poorest guy can usually do a lot better than the richest guy because he has no choice but to play better. And it, it evens the playing field. I've, pl I played with, uh, you know, I've played with the president. I've played with, uh, with, uh, a lot of politicians and actors and, uh, and athletes. And it's great. Everyone loves poker. I mean, I would be a horrible poker player because if I had a good hand, you would know it. I'd be like smiling. I'd be like, "Fucking yeah, I'm about to win." It, I mean, like, because you mentioned in football, you knew where to go based on one, you know, if the tight end was maybe leaning to the right. By maybe. watching the linemen, the way they lean slightly and watching their feet and their hands, there's always someone there giving a tell. But that's here's the funny thing about poker: poker is the same way. Right. Someone at that table, there's if you just pay attention, everyone at that table is telling you a story. If you watch a person's hands, the way they breathe, the way they talk, the way they shuffle their chips, you can see their heartbeat in their neck if you pay too close attention enough. Like if someone usually, I, I, I don't, I know you don't want to give away 
too too many poker tips here, but like, uh, oh, can oh, you no. tell when someone has a good hand? I can read anyone. I've never been at a table of anyone I've been afraid of. I've played with the best. I've beaten the best. I've bluffed the best. I've made hero calls against the best. Um, I truly believe I am one of the best poker players on earth. I may not have the millions and millions to show for it, but you put me in a poker tournament with the best people out there, and I'm not just going to hold my own. I think I'm going to take it down. Like every, the one guy, every time. I forget the uh, I forget his name because I was so uh, fascinated with Helmuth. But he's the poker player that wears the glasses with the eyes. Well, there's a few like the sunglasses or the one that has like the big eye. Oh, you're taking big Greg Raymer. Yeah. Yes. Greg like yeah. was he doing? Was he wearing those glasses? I, I, pl I played with him many times. Uh, like mostly satellites in the WSOP. Satellites are one table tournaments to win your way into bigger tournaments. And I play. He likes to play the five hundred and thousand dollar satellites, and I've played with them and beat them many times. Like, did he wear those glasses so you couldn't read his eyes? I think he just wanted to try to stand out and thought it was fun to look at that. Like people who wear glasses, and I wear glasses because they're prescription. Uh, when I do wear them, otherwise it's because I. I mean, I, like those are prescription glasses right there. Right. But I wear them only when uh to to see the table. I don't do it to to hide my eyes. I think people who wear glasses do it because they can't hide their emotions. I'm the I'm a shit talker at the table myself. Are you really? Oh yeah, I will talk so much shit at the table just so people will open up against me. And when people see me talking crap, it's they think that I'm a loose player and they'll open their range against me. Um, I like to I bluff a lot. I bluff a lot, but I pick my bluff battles, and I will purposely get caught in bluffs early on so that later on those people will think, oh, he's bluffing again, and then I'll have it and I'll capitalize on them. My job is to. My job and goal is I'm good at opening up the game and I'm good at getting people to make bad calls against me at the right time. So I will chip up quickly. Uh, but no, talking shit, like not not mean shit, but fun shit. Like I run a game. I run an underground game. It's fun uh, twice a week. And I got a game tonight, which is why I got... No, no, I, I know go we got to like wrap things well, up. Seven, I got to be out of here by 7.30. I don't know how long you want me on before, but... Uh, uh, I, I've been running a game. It's fun. And in jail, I ran games in jail. I ran poker tournaments in jail where I had like over a hundred players playing and the guards would come play and some of the superintendents would come play and everyone had to buy in for me, but I organized all that. Poker has been a way for me to get back on my feet. And it's also been, you know, it's been, it's been, it was a good way to keep my mind sharp while I was in jail. And as long as I can find a poker table with a few bucks in my pocket, no matter how broke I am, I know I can run it up. Is poker a game to not, uh, like, like, I imagine emotional players, like, I'm a big UFC guy, and they say you never want to fight emotionally because you make mistakes, you know, which is why Conor McGregor is so great because he gets guys so fucking angry that they rush him to kill him. And yeah, then they he, want to jack him up. Right, and I would imagine, like, someone, like, if you were playing against, say, Phil Helmuth, who's let's just say emotionally, uh, you know, uh, well, uh, see, uh, would you try and fuck with him to get him going just so he might make a mistake? You know, if if it were later on in the tournament, sure. But early on in the tournament, that's just a dick move because he's a nice guy. Like right. I've played with him a few times, and early on in tournaments only. Um, so when when our table breaks, we go to another table. He's usually not there. But if we were like down to the final table or so, and I've been playing with him for, uh, give me this scenario, it hasn't happened yet, but if I've been playing with him for like a couple days now, because that's how long it takes sometimes to get to the money or to go deep or to win a tournament, it could take days. Uh, I would like, I would try to bust his balls whenever possible and to make him play terrible against me, yeah. And if some, but at a table, you don't want to, 
poker is not a sprint. It's a marathon. The, the kind of poker I play, I'm talking tournament poker. Cash game poker is different. It's a completely different beast. Like if I was playing cash game, yeah, I want people to make stupid calls against me and get a big win and leave. But marathon poker, which is tournament poker, you want to take your time. You don't want the whole table just hating on you because then everyone can turn it on you too. Like I will talk shit within reason, but I'll keep it also in check and I'll, I'll pick my battles also. You want to you wanna beat up on the weaker players. You want to have it against the stronger players and stay away from them in general. Um, and you, if you can, there's also players that will call anything. You you want to have it against them, so you don't want to fuck with them because you can't bluff. You can't bluff an idiot. You can't. Right, because they don't know any better. Yeah, but there's bottom line when you play poker. A good poker player doesn't have a game plan when he goes into a fight. He weighs it as it happens. He because you you have to change. I'm constantly changing my game against everyone I'm in. And based on the cards, based on with the reactions and whatnot, you don't. If you have a game plan like, "Oh, I'm going to check raise right away," you can screw yourself and fall into a into. And you could fall into a trap, lose all your chips. Poker is all about emotion too. You have to keep your emotion in check. By far, you have to keep your shit. Do not play poker when your girl's mad at you. She she will just lose all your money. How realistic is the movie Rounders? Uh you know what, Rounders, uh, in my opinion, is the best poker movie out there. I mean, when I, I saw Rounders before I even knew poker, and I, and I liked it. I watched it again after I knew poker, and I loved it. How realistic is it, though? A guy heads up with Teddy KGB. First off, he shouldn't be splashing the pot. That should never happen. Um, tells should, are always there. Him eating the Oreo. The cookie, right. Yeah, that's a little too obvious, too. I mean, there's there was tells there regardless when... You know, based on the betting, I mean, when he had the the nut straight to two pair, that's a cooler. And for him to make that fold, hey, that's good. You know, that's going to make the other guy go go crazy. Um, The movie's the, the closest to being legit when it comes to poker, but there were still things in there that would never happen. Like, there were still a lot of string betting happening. Like, when he goes, I see, and I raise. Nope, that's a call. I can't raise. Right. Because it's a string bet. You have to say raise right away. Let's say that I want to raise, but I see, I see, and then I see no one's mad or people get mad and I go, oh, and I raise. No, it's string betting. You can't do that. No, There's I, rules. <laughs> I mean, my favorite scene in the movie is when they're all in Atlantic City and, you know, the, the regular people yeah. sit down. And, now, does that ever happen? Like, Let's just say you're bored one night. You, I'm going to go to Hollywood Park and, you know, play with the... The little people. No, it, it happens all the time. But and, I mean, I go to I go to Vegas. I live in Vegas every June for the World Series, and there's sixty three. There's over sixty events there, and ranging from anywhere from five hundred dollars to a, a million dollars. I, I don't play the million dollars. Obviously, I wish, but uh, I play all the satellites to win my way into the other events. Like this year, I played nine events, um, ranging from fifteen hundred to five thousand. Um, but there's the, at the satellite tables, all the all the players that know each other. We'll we'll get together. We'll play at the satellite tables, and we'll we'll constantly play against each other. And then we'll chop, you know, like uh, I've chopped uh, with um, a lot of like a, a lot of bracelet winners always want to chop with me because like because <laughs> I am not easy, and I, I I will I will negotiate. I'll be like guys, you need to give me something good to go away, and they'll do it again. Paul Volpe was like one of the best online players, and he he's a great live tournament player. We were playing the thousand dollar satellites where you got to pay a thousand bucks to buy in, and he would have, uh, you know, he's like, you can't always have it, but he's someone that I can easily bluff because I've I've 
painted such a great picture of myself in front of him that he thinks I only play the nuts and I bluff that guy all the time. And then when we get down to the final two, he chops with me all the time. And this is one of the best players on earth. And, and he's chopping with me because he doesn't want to play me. Right. And that's a, that's a, that's a big respect, sign of respect for me. Oh, um, sure. Uh, and I'm, 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 I'm thankful to be in the poker world and I'm very respected in the poker world. As far as the bigger players go, I have, Right now, I'm trying to. Last Monday, I was in uh, Vegas to meet with Doyle Brunson. I don't know if you know who Doyle Brunson is. He's the king. Yeah, well, Doyle Brunson uh, uh, contacted me about last month because he heard that I had cancer, uh, and he his his daughters and I have been friends for years. Well, uh, she's I didn't know that she was uh, praying for me, and they they're very religious, so they've been praying for me. I didn't even know, and out of nowhere, I get a phone call from Doyle, who I've met a handful of times, but I've never been like friends with. I mean, he's the godfather of poker. The guy's a living legend. And the first time I ever heard his name was on death row in Pakistan. Even the Pakistanis would say Doyle because of the 10 deuce hand. And uh, so he, we had a 36 minute conversation and he was telling me that he was only given three months to live back in his thirties and he's been around now he's in his eighties. So he was letting me know that don't listen to the doctors. Just, you know, uh, he was giving me some really good, uh, good advice and, and words of wisdom. Well, I said to him, has, has, why has no one told your story yet? And he let me know that, you know, people were interested, but they never followed up on it. And, you know, they wanted to Hollywood it up too much. And I don't think you need to Hollywood it up. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they said that, you know, like that no one really cares about poker movies. And I said, I don't think your story is a poker movie. I think your story is amazing. And that just happens to have poker in it. You know, right, right. He used to play poker when it was the wild, wild west. When he said he'd been, he's been arrested over 50 times where the cops would come and shake him down, where the, the people who were hosting the games would have to have machine gunners on the roof in case they got hijacked. And sometimes when you'd win, you'd have to get in a shootout just to get to your car. I mean, those are the, those are crazy stories. And I said, there's no reason to Hollywood that up. And he's like, well, there needs to be a religious aspect of it. And I said, I, I would know the perfect director if you'd be interested. He's like, well, yeah, I'd, I'd listen to him. So I brought my friend, Sean McNamara, who directed Soul Surfer. Um, we're, we're producing movies together. We're producing Reagan with Dennis Quaid and Trinity that Leon Uris wrote. Um, and we're also doing a, a movie called Child of the Storm, which is uh, about uh, the true life story of uh, Chris O'Rourke, who was a pro surfer who got a really uh, aggressive form of brain cancer and died at only 20 years old. Um, so they do a lot of faith-based movies and I've been friends with these guys for uh, just, just under 20 years now. And I told Sean about Doyle and he wants to meet. And so we drove out there to go meet and we spent like four hours with the man at his house. He gave me a hat. I mean, just to be able oh, to spend, wow. spend the day with this man was a huge honor for me. If, even if he says no, well, he's, you know, we're texting now we're friends and he's uh, following me on Twitter and, <laughs> And it's Doyle Bronson. It's, oh, it's Doyle Bronson. This is the greatest poker player on earth and, and that it's ever lived. And and he's hopefully gonna go over the go over the uh paperwork and we'll move forward. I wanna do a documentary about his life, not about the poker, not the the I don't want the Vegas stuff. I want like his life leading up to Vegas and the main event, like how he became a poker player and and all the 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 like his his love story with his wife is great. And how they she she basically supported him while he had the ups and downs right. of winning. He didn't just win and win. You know, he had a lot of losses before he started getting good. And I want to tell those stories in the early, you know, the fifties and the sixties before he finally won his main his his first main event and uh, the 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 first World Series. And then we want to transition it into a, a feature film. So the funny thing about that is like 
I, uh, Jamie Gold, who's also a big poker player, hears that I'm talking to Brunson about possibly doing his uh, story. Jamie's like, Brunson's not going to do it. He, everyone's tried, but then every day he's been hitting me up going, what did he say? What did he say? What did he say? And I was like looking at my text on my phone and I was laughing because I got Doyle Brunson, Jamie Gold, Jerry Yang. And these are, these are, these are all world champions and they're all just shooting the shit with me. And I'm, if, if I get to tell Doyle's story, it would be a, an honor and a dream come true because poker is something that I love to do and I'm, I'm mixing it in and with, with the best of the best and like to tell the living legend story in, in his own words, in a way that he would be proud of would be an honor for me. So I'm hoping that I get to do that. <laughs> I see Gene Hackman playing him, but he's retired. No, he's too old. He's too old. I, you know who I see playing him? I see a, a young Ryan Gosling playing him or Chris Pratt because it's the early days. Okay. Now, now what many people don't know, I mean, is Doyle Brunson was the second fastest uh, runner in Texas back in the day. And he was also drafted to the Lakers because he was a very good basketball player. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, people don't know that, but he got injured. And it's because he got injured that he had to start doing something to make ends meet. And that's how he started playing poker. Oh, I definitely see uh, interest in that movie because like you said, it's, you know, I'm like, I love hockey movies, but let's, they don't do well because it, it's hockey's not a very... You love slaps shot then, didn't you? But I, well, because it was realistic. Because uh, if you know anything about hockey, that's what minor league hockey was like in the 70s. It, it was, wasn't was a lot of skill. It was maybe one or two good players on the team, and then the rest were pretty much thugs. Uh, so, <laughs> those, would be, uh, those would be the days to go watch. I would love that. I, oh, yeah. I but, just hated the love story behind it, but I love the Hanson brothers. Oh, but they were all three pro hockey players. like So they gave it a little bit of realism. But like, I talked about The Longest Yard. I, I could see the Doyle Brunson movie kind of like The Longest Yard where, you know, The Longest Yard gets labeled a football movie. But really, football is just the backdrop, you know, of the the brutality of, of the prison and you know the the football was a nice way to end it the guards against the prison prisoners but it it really wasn't a football movie it was a movie about life and football was just the, the final you know so I could see it I don't think it would Doyle's movie would be a poker movie per se but it would just poker like you said would just be the backdrop of this man's amazing life. I mean, like you saw the movie Maverick, right? Oh my God! Do you consider Maverick a poker movie? Not really. No, it just happens to have poker in it, and the guy's a good poker player. But it's his way of having to hustle and everything, and use that skill to get ahead. Now, I see his movie being—I see his movie being a love story, and I also believe it or not, I see it being um, a faith-based movie. People wouldn't think this. Now, he's a big Christian, and uh, him being—you know—you know the names like Stu Unger. Or uh, uh, Slim Amarillo. Oh my God! Okay, well these were his like friends' friends, and Stu Unger was a big uh, drug addict. Unfortunately, well they would host Bible studies, and they helped. They they tried to clean him up. They did whatever they could to try to clean this guy up. Like they went out of their way for him, but he ended up succumbing to him. But they would host these Bible studies at their place, where all these poker players that you see on all the big bo uh, boards on the at the at the Rio every you know WSOP. And these guys would come to their house and they were, they were, you know, trying to witness them and save their souls. And, and I, th I just thought that was very admirable for them, for them to do this. I mean, I, people think poker, they think slime balls and the scuzz of the earth and like mobsters. And that's, that's part of it. 
but but it's not all of it. Poker players are very giving people. Poker players go out of their time, go out of the way to do charities again and again. I'm I'm doing a bunch of charity. I do so many charities, but I see a lot of poker players that do these charities too, and they're giving. There's this there's this one poker player that I like a lot. I mean, at the poker tables, people hate him because he talks so much shit. But I, I think he's great because I get a sense of humor. His name's Noah Schwartz, and Noah um, is is known as being a, you know, a smart ass and a jerk. And you got to, some, some people can't handle it. I can handle it. So I love it. But I see him, he, he, he joins us at this uh, charity tournament every June. And, uh, I think in December for Jacob Zalewski's out in Vegas. And this dude is at every table going all in again and again. And he's not trying to win. He's just there to donate. Right. He dropped, that guy literally drops like 8k every time he shows up to that tournament. And I'm just going to say that is the nicest dude out there. Right. Right? I show up, I, I drop a couple hundred bucks. I spend my time there. I bring a few people there. And if I win, I donate it back. But that guy's there every time. And then when I'm at poker tables, I was at this one poker table and, and people brought up no Schwartz and they were talking about how big of a dickhead he is. And I was like, Whoa, first off, that dude is not a dickhead. And you know, he goes to all these charities, these great causes, and he gives his money away left and right for the cause. And you know, that's pretty fucking nice of him to do that you know because you see him as one way at the table doesn't mean that's how he is and i think poker players get a lot of bad names and reps because people see him at the table and you know like me at the table i'm an asshole at the table i really am because that's my game that's the way i open you up but away from the tables i'm doing all these charities and uh, and i help out with all these causes the way you are at the tables, not the way you necessarily are away from the table. So don't label people that way. Like people say, Phil Helmy's an asshole. That dude's the nicest dude. He's the nicest guy. <laughs> well, I think anyone that's in the entertainment world, and I, I would say poker players are, are entertainers of sorts. Uh, like, you know, people see my comedy and it's, it's pretty aggressive and dark, but I'm, I'm the nicest guy off stage. Like, I don't want to make it sound like I'm pumping myself up but i donate to a lot of children's charities and because it means a lot to me and that's good no uh, I, I helping it's good to get back helping people is a good thing and doyle brunson's story i think honestly it will be a great story but also it'll be a good way to open up people's eyes that you know what i thought the poker world was one way and it wasn't for this because he went through a lot of bad stuff himself before he finally you know found forgiveness in himself and and you know his you know sure. in in what he believes in whether you know people are religious or not they can appreciate someone who you know can can leave this place a little bit better and and i i i'm really waiting anxiously waiting for him to get back to me and say let's move forward let's do this because the you know it, it would be an honor to be able to tell his story and also and uh, i'm happy to be producing with my friends i'm happy to still to be working on mayans and i mean that's that's awesome to be riding motorcycles on a show that i would watch anyways oh i mean kurt sutter is just, great so We've got, you know, I don't want you to get a parking ticket. About 15 minutes, they start giving tickets out. Right, fine. I look but, forward to that. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't want you to kick my ass because I got you a ticket. Uh, people, that never would happen. Well, no. Well, I, you know, I like to not put myself in situations where it's even the remotest possibility. Smart man. Well, you know, uh, that I learned from my dad. Never put yourself in a situation that you don't want to get out of. So I don't want to be at all in your crosshairs. See, so the only thing I actually learned from my dad is you win a lot more bees with honey, right? And it's I, I it holds true to this day. He was right. You win a lot more bees with honey. So I, you know, I would. <laughs> I don't want to get on your bad side. I appreciate that. And I want to help get your story out there. 
to a lot of people. So where would I you? Tr I truly appreciate that. I'm telling you, people watch this, they're going to be armed with the information that I know we got off way off topic or whatnot, but. But that's how I do it. I love it. Eric. That's great. No, oh, I love it. You can tell yeah. this was <laughs> not a scripted interview. That's great. I was relaxed and like, I want to come here and hang out with you when you're not doing this now because you're just a good, you're just a good dude. <laughs> you know, I, uh, and I must thank Kim Dixon for setting this up. Um, because, uh, Although I love interviewing comics and, and, and people from my various worlds of cartoon and whatnot, I, you know, really loved your story. Uh, and it's just so, such a wide array of uh, topics, that you, from a Pakistani prison to the World Series of Poker to charity events to high school football star. I mean, there's not many people who've, had that kind of a life and uh, still going i've got stories forever i just hope that this is just you know one of many chapters that i have left um so people can find uh everything about you on your website which is uh the eric audre story.com uh, odd day the uh, eric audre. yeah but to make it even easier look just type in my name eric odd e-r-i-k-a-u-d-e or Three Years in Pakistan, The Eric Day Story. Um, you can download it on iTunes, Amazon, and a bunch of different streaming platforms. You can find me on Instagram at Eric Day or Twitter at Eric Day, and it's in my link to download. And, I, you know, you watch this movie, it'll, it'll make you appreciate life a little bit more. It really will. I've had people call me or contact me on, on Facebook saying that they were suicidal before they had watched my story. And, uh, they, you know, for some reason, you know, my story has reached out to a lot of people and, and, it, and it usually reaches out to people who are dealing with a lot of uh, stressful things in their own life. And real quick, I mean, just a lot of oh. people have said to me, uh, I saw the movie, uh, the, the show Locked Up Abroad. I mean, why would I want to watch your other documentary? And I'll tell them because Locked Up Abroad only told 48 minutes of my entire story. All they did was take the, the exciting stuff and they left a lot of gaps, a lot of unanswered questions. They only told a year and two months of my story and I was in jail for three years. And by doing that, um, they sort of left me hanging in the wind and I've been getting... A lot, I know I got a lot of death threats and harassing messages from people who who didn't believe my story or didn't understand how I was able to handle a lot of the things I was able to handle. But my new documentary answers all those questions. And the reason why I did my new documentary is it was necessary because of all the harassing messages I'd been getting for the last six years after doing Locked Up Abroad. And I've had people who watched Locked Up Abroad before who made fun of me saying, look, I thought you were you know a liar and a dick and now I understand you, I'm sorry. And that, that means a lot. It really does because I'm still a human being. I still have feelings and whatnot. So the new documentary has helped uh, ease the nonsense that I've been dealing with. And, and it's also been helping people. It has. I, 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 don't, I don't know how it has. I wasn't expecting it to do that, but it has been. And I'm grateful. It, it lets me know that by sharing my story, it wasn't for nothing because sharing my story is not fun you know, like a lot of people who know me didn't even know. I don't talk about it. I don't. I just go on with my life. I smile. I, I move forward with my projects and I just keep living my life any way I can. But when people hear about my story, they say, I, I had no idea that this happened to you because you don't, you don't carry this on you. You don't, you don't show it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I hope, I hope that this will prevent this from happening to somebody else. And if it can make you feel better about your life by knowing that you can get through anything, then so be it. It wasn't for nothing for me. 
Well, uh, Eric, thank you so much for, uh, it was an honor to meet you and to talk about your life. I know, uh, that was probably the intimidating thing to talk to you was like, geez, I don't want to bring up bad memories, but it, it's like, you know, how do we talk about this without, you know, the torture and all the things you saw in prison. And, uh, but, uh, I thank you for sharing your story and hopefully if, like, you know, with the girl I was telling you about, you know, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So uh, Google Eric Aude, that's E-R-I-K-A-U-D-E, and uh, follow him on Instagram and Twitter and his website. I'll list all the links uh, when we post this in about 20 minutes. And uh, watch the Mayans. I, I believe tonight's the ninth episode. Next week is, I believe, the season finale. And... um I hope you come back and uh, anytime uh, when you make the Doyle Brunson story, I want the exclusive. Oh, I'd love that for sure. Uh, and uh, this will be on uh, SoundCloud and iTunes guys. You know, the review uh, that I would love to have you leave for this. It helps and uh, follow Eric, support him. He didn't have to come here. I know it's weird for guests to come over to some guy's house. They don't know. Oh, this guy's a comic. He's probably gonna make fun of me. But uh, I really enjoy talking with Eric and uh, watch this documentary. You know, if we all support each other, someday someone will help watch your documentary or whatever your, your comedy show or music show. That's how life should work. So I love you guys and become fans of Eric Audet now. Yeah.